I want people who are struggling with like coming out or struggling with the idea of being themselves to know like there are ways you can not just live but thrive and be happy. You are listening to Made of Human, also known as the Mopad, a podcast hosted by Sophie Hagen, who is a Danish comedian. Mopad. Trying to find out Mopad. how to do life. Mopad. But it turns out Mopad. nobody knows. everyone in this episode i will be speaking to riley silverman who is uh, a really incredible person a really really funny person and someone that uh, was one of the absolute first people that i contacted when i realized that i could do these uh, overseas uh, episodes i have so many people on my list um don't worry there will also be normal face-to-face uh, chats happening on the podcast but at the moment i am fully engaged on getting people on this podcast that wouldn't normally be able to be on it. Uh, I hope you're still super into it. Um, I mean, I know the sound quality is a bit different, but at the moment I still feel like it's worth it because of the quality of the guests that I uh, that I get to have on and the just the pure representation that I I get to um I get to have on it. So right, so you'll enjoy you'll enjoy Riley Silverman in a tiny bit first three things first of all i am going on tour next year in april may and june 2019 i am going on tour a mixed stand-up and book tour i will be going to cambridge coventry colchester cardiff manchester liverpool newcastle bristol birmingham leeds norwich and exeter and there'll be a few more dates announced so i'll be doing a uh, an hour of my stand-up show Bubble Wrap, which is about body image and being a teenager. It's about mental health and it's a bit about Westlife. Uh, yes, it does include some erotica fan fiction. Uh, and then in the second half of the show, I'm going to be doing a reading of my upcoming book Happy Fat, which is a book about why it's fucking okay to be fat. So all these tickets are out now. You can get them through sophiehagen.com. So please come and uh, and hang out. I'm going to bring a ton of books as well if you want to if you want to buy one. I uh yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I can't wait. Uh another thing I'm doing is my new podcast called Secret Dinosaur Cult. It's a live comedy podcast. It's really really fun to do. I'm doing it with Jody Mitchell. Uh, a former guest of the Mopad, who is absolutely incredible. It's a podcast in which we talk a bit about dinosaurs, but it's more like a cover for us to be able to talk about stuff like our sexuality, queerness, identity, feminism, uh, enemies. We talk about enemies and religion and being a housemaid. And we totally talk about trauma and daddy issues as well. And we're doing live shows at the moment all over London and they're the most fun. It is so much fun. People bring gifts. People bring their favorite dinosaurs. Please come. It's the most wonderful place to be amongst the most wonderful, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful people uh, that you'll meet. Third of all, oh, oh, all Secret Dinosaur Cult stuff is on secretdinosaurcult.com. Go there to get the tickets for the live shows and stuff. Third thing is uh, I'm doing work in progress shows all over London as well. Sorry about the London thing, but I am touring next year, so let's remember that. Uh, work in progress shows uh, for my new show, which I will premiere, I guess you say, in uh, in Edinburgh 2019. So I'm working on it now because I have the book tour next year, so I won't have time to work on it then. So come to this. It's uh, in the Tap Room in Islington. It's this lovely little place where I love doing shows. So come and uh, help me work on my new show. Uh, because it's a work in progress, there won't be a trigger warning, just to let you know, because uh, I don't know what I'm going to be saying on stage, and I don't want you to... I can't... Uh, as When I'm still working on the show, I can't have people come in with like a pre... with like a preconceived notion of what's going to happen. So if you have any severe triggers, don't, don't come to the work in progress shows. Now... I will let you listen to... Oh, did I mention tickets for that on sophiehagen.com as well? I'm sorry for being so all over the place. I just did this... Um, I just had this chat with Riley 
like half an hour ago. So I'm still really excited to be talking about it uh, with you. And I'm tired now because it was afternoon in where she was in the States. And it is very, very late where I am in the UK. And I'm meant to have another chat with another person in uh, like at 2 a.m. And I, I can't anymore. I'm too old for that. I'm going to have to reschedule that one. But I will now let you listen to um, an episode I'm very, very proud of with the absolutely incredible Riley Silverman. <laughs> I'm recording and that's all good. Okay, cool. Cool. So um, I'm so happy that we're doing this. Yes, finally. Finally. What, uh, so for people who might not know who you are, do you want to do like a brief introduction? Oh, sure. I'm Riley Silverman and I am a comedian and writer uh, based in Los Angeles, California. Uh, and you're super cool. I met you three, three years ago. It was something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it was how do how do you find Los Angeles as a as a place to do comedy? I like it. I think that any comedy scene is kind of what you make of it. I think there's a lot of people who are pretty down on the LA scene because it can be a little bit competitive and it can be a little bit of a grind. And I think that for me it's a matter of like finding out what I enjoy about it and what I enjoy about doing comedy here and just doing that as opposed to like letting myself get frustrated with the culture or something like that. Can you do that? Can you, are you good at like letting yourself like not get frustrated? Are you that much in control? I'm better than I used to be. I, I used to really struggle with it and I used to get really frustrated. And like, I think that like if I didn't figure out how to be better about it, I think I would have burned out a little bit more, but I, I was on the verge of a burnout when I was like, okay, maybe instead of like getting so angry and frustrated all the time, maybe I should find a way to do this in a way that I enjoy. And that's kind of what I've done. So so I don't know. I don't know if it has hurt my career to do that. I, I kind of feel like I've actually, alter, like, strangely, actually had more success because of it. Because I'm like no longer miserable, and so I'm like more like alert when things, good things, come my way, and also like maybe more appealing to people because I'm not just this just mess of a human being anymore. But yeah, we'll see. So where are you at right now in like your emotional? life like right now at the very moment when we're speaking what's where are you in your life i mean it's a scary time right now there's there's a lot of stuff happening in the u.s right now that is very terrifying and it it's hard to feel comfortable because like i'm a transgender woman and there's a lot of changes to the walls that just seem to be happening with like a snap of the fingers and that's a little bit scary. And there's also a lot of things happening with immigration that are really scary. Like we have a lot of like right now there's like troops being sent to our border to stop immigrants from coming in or it's, it's really scary. And like, that's terrifying. And, you know, and we just had a horrible shooting here over the weekend at a, at a um, synagogue in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh. And it was a tree of life synagogue. And so just this like, very racially charged violence happening and a lot of it seems to be state supported and that's very terrifying and so it's hard to be like i'm doing good like because there's so much happening so i it's it's going to be very you know if we get through this somehow if we can kind of like bring some sanity back to our country i still think this is going to be a very strange time to look back on and it's it's a weird thing about the nature of podcasts and so because like i was a guest on a podcast from uh mutual friend sarah morgan that we recorded the week before trump was elected in 2016 but she didn't release it until like a, a couple months ago and it was really weird to like listen to this podcast that was recorded back when like we didn't know what was going to happen and i remember i remember being in the room with her because she was visiting the usa when we did it and I remember saying to her, like, I was starting to have real fears that he was going to win. And she was like, I thought it was kind of in the bag for Hillary. I'm like, yeah, I think a lot of people think that, which is why it's scary, because it's not that guaranteed. And obviously I was right. And I hated that I was right. But but yeah, so it's so weird to listen back to a show that was recorded then and like how different I felt about the world then versus now and how different will I feel in two or three years based on what happens next. So, What's how much 
I know you, you obviously can't speak on behalf of all Americans, but how much does it... Oh, I can't. I'm authorized. <laughs> how yeah. much does it take up, like, your everyday... Like, is it just something that's always in the back of your head? Or is, is it, like, a constant feeling of, like, a threat or a, just a sadness or...? I mean, I'm especially the last week or so because of the trans stuff. It's definitely like almost like a humming noise. You know, it's just like, it's a constant distraction. It's always there somewhere. And then, yeah. And even the things that don't affect me directly are things that at least a couple times a day will pop in my head and like, okay, what can I do about this? It's like, I only have so much money that I can donate to campaigns and I can only have so much I can do. So it's there. And it's like, also like, it can be very emotionally draining and I just, I feel like I'm exhausted all the time right now. And I just feel like I, like I have some things that are happening in my life that are going really well career wise and like fun things, things that I'm enjoying doing. And then I feel super selfish afterwards. Like I was this weekend, I was flown to a different city to play Dungeons and Dragons professionally. Like I was being paid by Dungeons and Dragons to play the game live at their booth at a convention with some people on a show that I'm on. And I'm like, this is so ridiculous and absurd. And like a thing that like, if you had told my like 15 year old self, You're like, listen, when you're an adult, first of all, you'll get to be a lady, but also you'll get to play Dungeons and Dragons at a convention with gamers and like you pay for it. But also the same weekend you do that, a bunch of people are going to die across the country from you and you're going to feel miserable that you can't even be happy about it because like, how do you celebrate the success in your life when people were just murdered for who they were? And it's just, oh, America. That does sound like the right sound to make. Just a big, ugh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think what I wanted to ask was if you have a way of separating, you know, your own emotional, like your private life and your career and all of those things with what's happening around you. But I think what I actually should or probably more want to ask is, do you want to separate it? Do you want to be able to have a bubble of your own little kind of your a own little life? Bit. A little bit, and I try to. One of the things that I had said to myself when the election happened and when we were suddenly very afraid of what the future would hold for all of us was I'm not going to let them steal my joy because, like, there are things to be joyous about. And I'm, like, living as myself for the, you know, first several years of my life where I'm out and I'm living and I'm transitioning and it's great. And, you know, I don't want them to take that from me. And I like, so when I do have weekends, like I just had where like things that I really like can't believe is my life. I want to be able to celebrate those. And I want to be able to have that joy. And also this is so like, this sounds so self aggrandizing, but I was just talking today about this with some other trans people on Facebook. And we were talking about how there is this, constant thing that happens in our community and I'm guilty of it too. So I'm not like putting to other people for doing it. We all do it where someone might share a bit of their joy on, on Twitter or Facebook. And then somebody else who's having a rougher time will comment with like a sad thing connected to that. So someone might be like, Oh my, uh, like I, I, I posted a thing one time about, about dating and I was just trying to like give people hope about their dating life And then somebody else responded like, well, it's extra hard for me because of this. And I was kind of like, great. Like, I'm, I, I get it. I get that it's hard for you. It's hard for me sometimes too. I have devastation sometimes in my brain about my dating life. But at the same time, I think that part of how the culture keeps trans people down is by this narrative that being trans is an inherently like miserable lifestyle and that like you should only transition if you are absolutely unable to function otherwise because it's going to be so hard and so tough and there's a lot of that in there in the culture and i don't like it because i think first of all it scares people away from transitioning if, if it's what they really need to do i also think that it like sells this idea that trans people are inherently sad and trigger warning suicidal. And it also, I like for me, I wasn't suicidal because of things in my life that 
like made me able like I, I i have a lot of like history with it with my with family and like people relate like related to me or or like neighbors and stuff like that so like it's just an option like i haven't gone there in my head that often but i was miserable for a long time and i was coping with that misery and i was coping but i wasn't living you know and like from and but because people like flat out i was kind of made to feel ashamed that i even like expressed the desire to to start living as openly as a woman because you're like, well, if you don't have all these painful things happening to you, then you're probably not really trans. And like, they made me feel like I was usurping the title from other, like more qualified trans people. And I, it's like, I probably lost two years to that. Cause I remember posting on a forum about what I was feeling and what I was going through and what I thought I might need to do next and being private message and told, no, you're not to people. And, 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 me feeling impressionable and, and vulnerable was like, oh, I guess they're right. And then I didn't transition for two more years. And it's like, what would have happened if I had come out earlier? Like maybe, you know, lots of things. But, and, and like, you know, talking about too, like when there's such a cultural idea that being a trans woman in public, or trans anything, not just trans woman, sorry, I don't mean to like center, I centered my only experience, but that it's so miserable. I think that leads to kids who are trans hurting themselves because they literally feel like I'm never going to have a chance at a good life because they're taught that by the culture. And so it matters to me to be able to grab on to whatever joy that I can and shout it from the rooftops. First of all, because I didn't think it would be possible. I remember I didn't transition for several years in comedy because I thought I would lose my comedy career if I came out. And that was ridiculous that I thought that, uh, because I'm doing way better now because people know who I am and I'm not miserable all the time. But yeah, I want I want people who are struggling with like coming out or struggling with the idea of being themselves to know like there are ways you can not just live but thrive and be happy. And I, I, I'm talking a lot. I'm sorry. I'm not even letting you talk. I'm sorry. No, it's perfect. I, I really want you to talk about some of the good things. Like if you were talking to a young kid who definitely knew that they were trans and they were scared because mm-hmm. they'd been told all these warnings and horrible stories like what would be all the good bits you would say to someone like that well there's one bit that i could not say to a child uh and that (laughs) is uh this is a little more adult of a topic one thing that i didn't know as a kid or as a teenager or in my 20s even is that if you're a trans woman you're on estrogen for a few years your orgasms change and you actually start to have female orgasms versus male orgasms. And it's a very, it's a wholly different experience. How so? It's just like, it's a lot more intense and it's a lot more of like that inward feeling. And like, it's like a lot more of like the different cells of your body, just like shaking and shimmying as opposed to just like a quick eruption and you're done, you know? Uh, and I didn't really enjoy sex before I transitioned. Like I was kind of just like, I would, I would do it with partners who wanted to do it. But like, for me, it was always like, well, once we're done making out, that's like the end of it for me. Cause I loved making out. But when I moved into like actual sex, I was like, I don't, this isn't what I want, but I guess we'll, we're doing this now. So we'll, get, we'll wrap this up, I guess. And like, now I really enjoy it. Like now I've, I've like, now that I can do it the way that like makes sense to me and makes sense to my body. It's great. So that's like something that I might tell someone in college or older than that with kids one thing I would say for me is that I, I do feel like I have a better grasp of my emotions than I did when I was living in the closet. And when I was on the wrong, for me, set of hormones, I feel like when I was more ruled by testosterone and that was like the driving force of my body, I would get angrier a lot more. And I think that like also the fact that I was like living a lie made me angry because like the frustration of having to like keep that going and having to like live with it. Um, yeah, it was tough. So I think that was a problem that I don't have. Like now I feel way more in touch with my emotions. Like now I feel, I still get angry and I still get sad. I get sadder now than I used to, but I also feel like I have this wider spectrum of emotions that I felt. Like I feel like I was always feeling like some bit of sadness, but not to where I am now. And like some bit of joy, but not to where I am. Like, I feel like everything got like, like high definition, you know? So that's what I would say. Like you, you, I think you know yourself better. And I think that it's, it's amazing how much you free up space in your brain. Once you like, just let yourself be yourself versus like all the anxiety of what's going to happen when people find out who I am. Like, that's a big thing. 
and yeah. Have you always known? I have to some degree. I, I knew when I was a little kid that there was something wrong with me or something um, different. And I, I, I kind of was like, I don't understand why I don't just get to be a girl. Like, why, why do I have to be? Like, I felt like that's how I, at a young age, that was how I understood it. And then as I got older, I started to um, get a little bit about, like a little bit more understanding of what, being trans men. And now this was like in the eighties and nineties. So the um, concepts that we have nowadays weren't really as readily available then as they are now. So I had to learn uh, a few things, but um, yeah, I just, so I, I think that like, it took me a while to like understand like, and like language has changed and evolved since I was a kid. So like when I was the first word I ever heard about trans stuff was transvestite, which is not what I am, but like what made sense in the back of my head. And like when I first came out, I came out as a crossdresser because again, I had that narrative of like, well, if you don't feel like this, then you can't be this or whatever. And it's so ridiculous how much gatekeeping there is. Have you always been kind? Have you always been, you seem, I think what I feel is that you're very much in control or you're, you're capable of taking control of sort of, um, or is maybe it's like self-awareness perhaps. Has that always been there? No, I don't think so. I think that's definitely a learned trait and, or a trait that I've been able to harness as I've gotten older and had some life experience underneath me. And that's, that's kind of talking about like when it comes to that emotional like maturity that I've achieved. Uh, and I can tell the difference like when I was because of my hormones, like I had an incident this weekend, I was on a trip for business and um, I had a hotel room that was booked for me by the producers of the, of the event that I was doing. And we had an issue where our flight was canceled the night before and we flew out the next morning instead. And so our hotel, we tried to like get the night taken care of, like the night before canceled. And I got to the hotel on Saturday and they had canceled our entire room and they had given us like a bunch of excuses as to why and then them added up or whatever. And I remember like talking with the woman and like trying to get her explained it to me in a way that made sense because she kind of was like corporate double speaking around me and not giving me any straight answers. And then finally she kept giving me this like really bad responses to stuff. And I, um, I like asked her a question and she goes, you need to calm down. And I didn't think that I was being unreasonable, but I also occasionally I have an insecurity that I am being unreasonable and just don't realize it because that's what I was accused of a lot in the, in the before times and the, and the, the, the never nevers. I don't know. Um, but the woman that I was with my friend who had flown in with me, who I was sharing the room with one of my co-stars later on, she's like, you weren't being unreasonable at all. That woman was so rude to you. And she goes, you were being really rational. And like, you were like, she goes, you were frustrated because a natural, you didn't have a place to sleep. But like what I did in that moment when she said that was to step back and like, let my friend talk to her. And I got my phone out and I found a different hotel that had a room available for cheaper than that one was. And I just like, was like, okay, we're going here now. And I like booked a room and everything and just like, didn't let her get to me anymore. And I think that's a moment of like, something that I don't know if I would have been as able to do in the moment a few years ago. I, can I ask, are you, are you sick of ty- Are you sick of talking about uh, being trans? I imagine that that's what the main question is of, I mean, I know it's a big part of, you know, cause you've had to kind of fight for your existence, but I, I felt a bit like, Oh, you really, you're asking that. That's probably the most cliche question that one can ask you. I get a little bit sick of it. Um, I, I brought it up today, so that's not like you brought it up. Um, but cause that's, you asked me how I was feeling about the culture right now and that's how I'm feeling. So that's like a legit thing. I do get a little sick of talking about it only, but I also know how valuable it is to talk about it. So, and I made myself a public figure and I, I, I kind of have this little bit of a martyr complex where I'm going, well, I will talk about it so people who don't want to talk about it don't have to because like I'm a public figure and I've made myself someone people are going to ask questions to. And so to some degree, 
I've like taken that responsibility on myself. So even if I'm uncomfortable with it, sometimes I try to be jovial about it and try to be like, it depends on how it's done and how it's treated and what respect is given to it and stuff like that. But I also like, I just flew to Seattle two weeks ago and did a talk for a college where like, I kind of combined my comedy with like storytelling that like went through the story of my transition and stuff like that. And I did like a Q and a with people and like that I really liked doing and that was fun. And I'd be happy to do more of that. But it depends, like, I also, like, I'm a little bit more um, cautious when I'm asked on podcasts, like, just to talk about being trans. Because I'm also, like, a lot of times I feel like I'm put into a position where I have to defend it or I have to, like, explain it to everybody. And I don't get that. I don't get the need to have to explain it for people to be respectful of me. Like, I, just, I wish people could just go, like you don't have to understand what it feels like in my brain to be a trans woman. Just understand that I'm, I'm a woman. And that's all you have to like understand that I am a woman who has read male most of her life, but it's not, or just like even more simple. It's like, I am publicly identifying myself as a woman full time all the time. Just accept that. And we can move on. You don't need to ask all these other questions. Like if you're not someone who wants to date someone like me, fine. You don't need to tweet it at me. Because I'm assuming we're not going to date unless we date, you know? So, uh, Can I ask before I, I mean, this is uh, ironic because I've just talked about changing the topic, but you said something about <laughs> a dating thing yeah. that you talked about, which was to give people hope. What was the nice dating thing? I think, oh, wait, I don't remember. what. I, oh, the, oh, the thing I posted about. So there was a survey that somebody did that was about, like, what groups of cis people are willing to date trans people and it was like the percentages were kind of low and it was unfortunate, but it was like, Oh, like, like straight, uh, cis men won't date trans women, like almost across the board. And like, uh, like cis lesbians are more willing to date trans men than trans women. And like bisexual people are a little bit more willing to date both. And like some groups are more willing to date non-binary people than they are transgender people. Like all those kind of things. But the thing is, they were all talking in percentages. And so it sounded like horrifying, but like I broke it down and I was like, percentages of a population are still a very large part of the population. So it's like, even if only 25% of the group that you are interested in dating is willing to date you, that is still a lot of people to choose from. And the fact is you don't need 10,000 people to want to date you. You need the one. You need the two or three, you need the handful of people you're going to run into in your life. They're going to want you for who you are. And it, yeah, it does suck that like your, your options are lower. Like I deal with all the time. I am 36 years old and I have never been in a serious long-term relationship. Uh, I've never had a relationship last longer than like three to five months. Um, it's frustrating because I am somebody who I think would be better off with a partner. I think that I, I think that I am someone who is more, like monogamous and um good at that and like companionship but i just don't have never been given the ability for the option for it. i've dated people who have wanted to date briefly and then they, they've they've all been like in flux or in a situation where they can't they're not looking to commit to anybody right now and they might like might not want to have one partner or whatever and like that's their journey and fine but I want someone who wants my journey to be part of theirs. And I have a lot of friends who have that in their lives and I'm a little bit jealous of them. But at the same time, it's like, I'm not going to rail against the people who are absolutely never going to be interested in dating me because of that I just got to find the people who somewhere out there is someone hopefully who is looking for what I'm trying to sell, you know? So Dating is so, it's so hard, isn't it? Because it really requires you to be super vulnerable. And at the same time, the more you're rejected, the less vulnerable you want to be. And it just yeah. feels like this tumble dryer of just like putting yourself out there. Yeah, it really is. And it's like, it's this, I, I'm, I'm noticing the same patterns over and over again. So I'm trying to like teach myself not to fall in the same traps that I used to fall into. But I feel like I do it anyway. And then, but it's also like, I don't know, like I, a friend of mine told me last year after a pretty bad breakup that left me pretty devastated, she was, I, I, I was talking to this woman for about, I should say person that she identifies as more queer than, than as a cis woman. But so, but I was talking to somebody for a few months then we started dating and we dated for about three months and I really fell for her like hard and like 
gut-wrenchingly hard, you know? And so when, when she, when she broke it off of me, I was really hurt by it. And a friend of mine was like trying to give me tough love. And she gave me this whole speech about how like, Oh, you pursue unavailable women. And she like listed all the women I dated in the last couple of years. And like, what was made them unavailable but I'm also like, well, they all pursued me. Like, they all came to me and asked me out. Like, most people that I ask out tell me no. So it's like, I don't know what to change about myself to make people that are not going to hurt me want to date me. And I actually had a woman this year that I dated back in June for a couple of weeks. So, like, she told me, she said, you have a very gentle spirit. And, like, that makes you appealing to people. And I think that maybe there was something to that of, like, people who are going through a tough time or people who are like kind of like rebuilding themselves, see me as like a safe option of someone to date. But then like, maybe like, maybe they're not really act that interested in me. It's just like, they just see me like there's like a warmth to me that they see. And like, ironically, considering what I just said, that kind of sucks. Like, it's like, Hey, you have this gentle soul. So I want to steal that gentleness and then leave you sad. And like, it's, it's weird. And I don't know. <laughs> what do you want in a partner? Oh God. Um, it's been, so, I mean, it's been such a, I don't know. Um, Cause everyone I date is so different from each other. You know, I don't, I don't like, I want someone who wants to like build. Like, I hate the whole like, Oh, we're partners in crime or whatever, but I want someone like just kind of, that's a no one's really asked me that directly like that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, can I, like, can I, mean, I tell you? Can I tell you what, what it, where it comes from? Sure. Uh, a friend of mine just bought a house in like way north of London uh, with her partner, and now they're rebuilding this entire house and they're buying new furniture and like there's like three posts a day about you know the fridge and how oh the fridge didn't fit so they're getting a new size fridge and. Uh, they got new pillows and so they decided about the the color for the walls. And I'm like, that is the life I want. <laughs> so yeah. the last time I've kind of thought of, like, I've always been very uh, thought, I, I've always thought that was very untraditional. And I was like, I don't want like just like a, a little house with a, with a white fence and a husband and a, oh, but that house building, it just looks so good. Yeah. You know what? I, I remember saying to someone last year that what I want is someone to wake up with on Sunday mornings and walk to the farmer's market. Like there's a farmer's market by my apartment and it's there every Sunday. And I like going down to it and getting a cup of coffee and getting like a, a masubi or getting a, like a, a little breakfast burrito or something. And I was just like, and there's always these couples that are there walking around and like, it's like, just like their weekend little ritual they do together. And I was just like, I just want that. Like I want, I, you know, I want, someone I, I want someone who i can share my hobbies with but also has their own thing i don't want someone tethered to me at the hip like i want someone who can be independent and has her own things going on and then when we have things that we share we share and i think that's that that's kind of how i i view it like i was in i was in portland recently and i stayed at this couple's house i was put to, i was put in touch with them by the um the producer of this festival that i was on and yeah the husband does like photography and the wife like works in social media and like helps him. Like she like works with him on set sometimes, but also has her own things going on. And like at one point, like he was like, when I first got there, he was out of town on a trip and she was at like a, like a, a, a mixer. And like, I, I'd hear them like leaving at separate times with the plan of like meeting up later in the day for stuff. And I was like this, they're what they've got right now is what, what I would like to have. And they had a gorgeous house with two cats. So do you feel, uh, I mean, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but do you feel lonely? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really lonely actually. And it was the last week, especially with all the stuff that's been happening. I, I definitely felt like I don't have a support system that I'm super happy with. Um, and I'm trying to like figure out how to be better about that. But um, yeah, I think I deal with a pretty, prof- like I said, I, as someone, like when I talk to people about dating, and I talk about like wanting a partner and people will say like pretty stereotypical or cliche things, which are things like um, the like, 
you ought to just try being alone for a while. Like, just try loving yourself. And, not, and I want to be like, you understand that I've always been alone. Like, I've never not been alone. And I've, I had several years where I, doesn't, I, I, I haven't pursued dating because I was trying to figure out my own stuff and things like that. And, like, yeah, it was just a thing where I was like, I think people who say that think that when I talk about like looking for someone, they think I just broke up with somebody like six months ago, but I have like a whole spattering of like on again, off again partners. And they don't, I think they understand that I've never, I've never been anyone's girlfriend. I've never had someone that I would call my girlfriend. You know, I've never, and even before I transitioned, I was never anyone's boyfriend. It was always like, I would start dating someone, I would get interested and then they would like pull the plug. And that's been the entire history of my life. And so I think, I think there's a profound sense of loneliness that I think people who have not had that experience can't even comprehend. I had this last, last week, I met up with my friend and her friends and they had this an incredible friendship group. And so one of them had just been broken up with and she sat there and she was crying and they were all just comforting her and telling her amazing things and making sure that she wouldn't have to be alone by herself for the next five days until she'd recovered. And, and I just sat there and I felt like I was like a little boy made of wood and just completely incapable of you know, like I was like, oh my God, you've been broken up with and you just go to your friends. I would cry alone for three days first and then yeah. I would like prepare a few statements and then I would, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, I, would text it, I would text it to a few friends and then maybe in a few weeks we can talk about how, no, I'm, I'm good. And I just, yeah. I thought, wow, I mean, I think that has to do with why I can't be in relationships, like why that never works for me because if someone crying with their friends scare me, that's probably something I find a bit wrong with my ability to be vulnerable. Yeah, I, I can cry with friends, but I just don't have that like friend group that I have that long history with. I was just talking about this last night with someone where we were talking about people who are like still best friends with their friends from high school. And that all necessarily want that i am i'm still in contact with my high school best friend and we we know we have like an annual tradition of watching doctor who on christmas day when i go home to visit and like we have things like that and like we keep in touch and if he and his wife come to visit la we spend time together and they're wonderful people but our lives are going different ways and we don't have the same connection that we had when we were 19 18 years old you know and that's fine that's how life is but i know some people who have like their same friends from college or people they've been like great friends with for the last like five or ten years and i don't have anybody like that i have i have like one friend of mine that i became friends with back in the mid 2000s uh comedian maria shahada who uh st we started out in the same comedy scene together in columbus ohio and she's moved to New York. I've moved to Los Angeles. She had moved to LA right, right before I moved to LA. And now she lives over there in London. And we still stay in pretty good touch, but our friendship has definitely changed from being a like regular brunch friendship to being like texting each other once every couple of weeks to like check in and see how things are going and, you know, wish each other well when big things are happening. So even that, like that, that's probably my longest running and most established friendship. But even that, has like it's ebbs and flows and has ebbed a lot in the last several years because of distance and because of a lack of daily familiarity. What do you like with vulnerability then? I, I kind of swing like a pendulum because when I was younger, I was very closed off, which is part of why I have a hard time with, I, th I think I don't have a history of dating because I was always afraid to open up with people and then I started opening up more and more on stage, which led to me coming out as trans. And so I was being way more vulnerable. And that was kind of like my thing for a long time was I was like really vulnerable on stage and I was like an open book. And I, I did a lot of material on stage about some pretty hard things in my life, including like the death of my brother and things like that. And then, I don't know, last couple of years, I think I've just been hurt so many times by being vulnerable that I'm a little bit less vulnerable than I was for a while. And like now I still occasionally will like post a long rant on my Facebook or whatever, but I've caught myself now more often typing something. Today I was typing out a thing on Twitter 
And then I got, I was doing that thing where you're like adding tweets before you send them, like you put in the plus button. And I got about six into it and I just deleted the whole thing. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to put this out there right now. And so I think that I'm and like, I think that I'm starting to close off a little bit again. Yeah, I did two full shows in a row and one was about uh, like anxiety and feeling weird and partly about a tough breakup. And then the next show was about my emotionally abusive grandfather. And I think, so I haven't done that last one for, I think I filmed it in May or something. So I've not done it for a few months now and I can feel such a difference. There's something about, you know, I think you're like, you're on stage and you're so vulnerable because you're talking about these things. But I think in order to talk to so many people about something that's so vulnerable, I think you kind of have to build up a wall yeah. to kind of be able to sustain what that means to you. Yes, I think that's very true. I've definitely noticed that, like, especially, like, you know, I don't want to focus too much on the trans stuff, but, again, we already kind of covered it, but because I'm so candid about it on stage and I, I dig so deep into it, like, in my public persona, there is some degree of, like, not wanting to talk about it as much in my private life because, like, I just want to, like, can I just have it? And, like, there's a, there's a certain point, too, where there are some members of my community who need support and a lot of times we tend to come to each other for it rather than like support groups or talking to like a therapist for it because of various reasons and there's some times where I'm kind of like I feel bad but it's like I can't be everyone's rock because I I don't no one's my rock you know so like I get weighed down and and I hate it because I want to be able to help people I know that they need it and I don't want to like turn people away when they need help but there are some things that I'm just not qualified for or I don't have the emotional bandwidth for and I feel like me trying to to help them out with it would be probably more harmful to them than good in the long run and so I, I tend to try now to just like direct people to resources that can help them out. Like I had a situation earlier this year where, so I had surgery this year. I didn't have like the big surgery. I had a surgery, but it was trans related and it was a, a thing that was delayed about a month and a half. And so it finally happened. And then like the day after my surgery, I was sitting in my room and I got a ding in a Facebook message. And it was a woman that I know in comic and comedy who was putting me in touch with a young trans woman that she knew in the city who like needed someone to talk to, like didn't ask me first, like, Hey, can I send someone your way? She just made a group message on Facebook for all three of us. And then like, once we'd all said hi, she left the conversation and I'm like, I'm literally recovering from surgery right now. Like I have just gone through a, a profoundly um, like, life-altering thing that I had to fight tooth and nail to get. I'm exhausted and I'm also on pain medication and I'm like bedridden. And now you're just dropping someone on my doorstep and saying, please fix them. And I, I feel that I was actually pretty rude to her, not, not the friend, but the woman who wrote me. And I was kind of, cause like I had said like, Hey, I'm kind of recovering from surgery today. I can't wait to talk right now. And then a couple days later, she like sent me another message and was like, and like, didn't even like ask me how I was doing or anything like that. And just like launched into her like situation or whatever. And, like was like sending me pictures of her at a brunch or whatever. And I'm like, I just had surgery and I told you I had surgery. And like, I can't be here for you right now to hold your hand. I don't even know you. And like, I, I want to be able to help people like that, but I'm not qualified for that. And so like, all I could do is like, like, Hey, I need you to go. Here's, here's a support group at this place at this time. This is going to be more able to help you with what you're dealing with than me. Like I am not a therapist and like, this is not in my wheelhouse. And it sucks. Cause like I have set myself up to be this person who's like, I'm there and I'm this voice and I'm this speaker. And like, it sucks because I want to be able to help everybody. And I, I feel really guilty at times when I have to push people away, but I feel like for my own sanity, I have to do it sometimes. But also you do put out stuff for them, you know, like you, you do this, you talk on podcasts and you do stand up about it. And, you know, so you have already put what you have to give out there for them to find. But also like I, like I, my therapist, told me to do that same thing because I came to her 
and I was like, my friend's going through this really hard time. And she said, well, the numbers for this, this, and this, and then there's these groups and there's this place to find a therapist. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's really struggling. And she was like, the numbers are this, the groups are there, the website's that. And I was like, yeah, but he's really, str-. she was like, yeah, the website. Yeah. And I was like, oh, oh, I see. Yeah, I see what you, I see what you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true. It's too much emotional labor. It's too, it's too hard. Yeah. I think, I think I, and I, and I, it's not that I don't want to help. It's that I, I don't know how to in a way that's like not gonna like, you know, bring me down too. And also like to where I, I can't help people at all. So. Okay. So there's a question that I always ask on the podcast that I want to sure. ask you, okay. uh, which is kind of related to everything. Uh, it's based on a question that I asked the very amazing and world-famous boy band Westlife. I assume you know the Irish boy band Westlife? I, I do not. I apologize. I don't. Huge fan. You're a huge fan. That's great to hear. Yeah, I'm uh, a giant. Yeah. <laughs> so I met them when I was 13 and I asked them this question uh, and I now ask you. So what question would you most like for me to ask you? Oh. It could be anything. I don't know. Um, do you ever do interviews and stuff where you think, oh, shut up about those. Oh, it's the same questions every time. Why wouldn't you just ask me about blah, blah. Maybe there's a thing uh, you really want to geek out about. Well, it's funny because I'm, I'm not going to make you ask me about Doctor Who, but I feel like every <laughs> podcast I'm on, people make me talk about it because I'm like such an open, but also like I'm usually on American podcasts where people don't really know the show at all and are like, tell us about your, what's this, doctor who that you talk about so that's always a thing but i just was on i was on query camera esposito's podcast about a month ago and i like went on a huge rant there about why the show means what it does to me and how i think it's made me a better person so i won't subject you to that exact same rant today what's the question what what what, what's the question people uh, that you wish people would ask you more uh, it's funny that is what most people that's how most people deflect that question actually <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to be a dancing cliche on your show I appreciate it <laughs> um, I think mostly I when it comes to normal interviews with normal journalists I'm uh, I just really I really wish people would ask me about my comedy I'm, I feel like once you're an identity once you've or once you've even said something political, no. Once you're, if you're not a white straight cis man, and you've said something political, then that's your thing. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, that's very very true. Um, but I feel like you've asked me about my comedy a little bit, so I don't feel like you haven't not talked about my comedy. But that's also that's also not yeah. <laughs> That was also yeah. that was my that was my desire to be asked that. What's that's a fair what, point. That's a very fair point. <laughs> what would you like to talk about? What would, it I could mean, be. You've what, maybe you watched the film you liked, or you. Uh, okay, um, God, I wish I'd known this was going to be a thing. <laughs> I uh, which I guess defeats purpose if we do it that way. Okay, what is your single favorite shot? in any movie ever. Go on. Why do you want to be asked oh, that? Do you have a I don't know. I, just, I do. It's weird. Go on. I have, there's a shot in the movie Almost Famous where it's not even that like super relevant to the plot, but it's just, there's a scene in that movie where, uh, so they're, they're in New York and Kate Hudson's character has supposed to have left the tour because Billy Crupp's character's wife is now traveling with them and they're in a restaurant and she's there and everyone kind of notices her and they're all kind of like trying to look away from her. And Billy Crupp's wife is like, who is that girl? And then she leaves and then um, Patrick Fugit's character runs after her because he's in love with her. And there's this one shot where it's the street in New York city and there's like a row of taxi cabs and Mad Hatter, Mona Lisa is in Mad Hatter's by Elton John is playing. And it's like this half second frame that is just him like peeking into different taxi cab windows. And like it cuts away, cuts back. And like the shot composition is totally different. There's less car. It's like gone. It's like this one frame of a second. And I don't know why 
that frame hit me so hard when I was 18 years old, where it was just like this, it, it, it kind of kindled my love of film as a medium, as a visual and storytelling medium, because the idea that like in any moment of a film, there can be this one shot that hits someone as much as a painting of art on a wall, but it's also part of this bigger fluid thing. And it's, it's transitive and it's and you see it and it's gone. And like, you might be able to rewind it and watch it again, but you're, you have that exact moment of how you felt when you saw that. And that was amazing to me. There's also a similar thing in the movie Labyrinth with um, the, the Jim Henson movie Labyrinth where Jennifer Connelly is walking through the maze and there's like this statue that's like a face. And then a second later, she steps away and the camera angle changes and you realize it's not a face. It's three different rocks that are at different perspective. Like they're like, they're not together. They're like set apart from each other in such a perfect way that only from this one angle do they look, is the perspective lined up, is the line lined up where it looks like just one solid face. Any other angle, any other distance, any other focus, and you would see the cracks, you know, they, they wouldn't quite perfectly line up, but this one spot, you thought it was one solid face in one solid area. So I, that means like somebody had to decide exactly how much to measure each piece of stone. Somebody had to decide exactly how many inches to set them apart. Somebody had to decide all that. And that much work went into this thing that's on screen for less than 10 seconds. And that to me is like the, that's like the tingles when it comes to any sort of creative art form of like how, like the, the fact that you just sculpt this one little thing that is going to, that may have been lost on 90% of the people watching that movie, but like one person in a theater somewhere is like, Oh my God, when they see that, you know? And like that to me is just this unmimicable, th- I, I don't even know how to, how to describe it. It's just like this ethereal, it's the platonic ideal of what filmmaking and visual storytelling is. And I just, yeah, that kind of stuff fascinates me. And I don't know what the stand-up version of that is. Um, I don't know. I, I think maybe, maybe it's part of why I like stand-up is that I like it as a live medium. I like, I, I'm someone who doesn't tell her jokes the same way twice. Like I have my, I don't have like my written word for word joke. I used to when I was younger. Now I don't. Now I have my general idea. I know what my punchlines are. I have my timing, but they're always a little bit different. Every time I tell it, depending on what size the crowd is or where I'm at or what my mood is that day. My, and I, I love that idea of comedy as a live medium and that when you come, you come see a live comedy show, you were seeing a, a performance of art that will never exactly be recreated the same way that it is tonight ever again. It's, it's, it's fleeting. It's transitive. Um, it's a living, breathing art form. And like, yes, specials are fun. Yes, albums are great to listen to and they give you a snapshot at what a comic is doing. But there is nothing quite like being in a live space and performing and having that energy of the audience there. And yeah. Do you want to be the labyrinth scene or the almost famous scene of comedy? I I guess. Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I want to be someone that is blinked and missed. That is what I want to be. <laughs> and I, I, I have succeeded. In, no, I don't think I want to. I think what I want to be is someone who cares that much about her craft that she also does things like that. There's a, there's a Swedish, there was a Swedish Uh, pop electronic I, I don't know anything about music I don't know how to describe them they're called the arc and they had these really fun songs like the music was you know dance music and it was it sounded happy and the lyrics were so easy to understand but their lyrics like the the what they were actually saying with the songs was so serious they were talking about suicide they were talking about um gay adoption they were talking about the beauty industry they were talking about the aids epidemic and they were talking about but it sounded fun and it was so easy to understand and i always thought yeah i'd like to be the 
the, the arc of comedy to have something that was so accessible, but actually talk about something that was serious, but people could still, people didn't like think that. that that was beneath them or above them in some kind of way. I like that. That's really cool. Yeah. I remember a quote from Tina Fey one time about writing 30 rock and she said, I think it, no, actually, sorry, I'm lying. It was BJ Novak talking about the office. I think actually I could, now I don't remember which, which show, which person <laughs> it was, but the quote was about how I think it was the, I think it was when BJ Novak was, was going to work on the office and he didn't know what to expect with it. And so I think he wrote for it and was on it as an actor but yeah. I think it was um, Greg Daniels, who was the showrunner at the beginning of it, like did this thing where he like drew a Venn diagram, and he's like, "This circle is what like smart, interesting, like new things, and this is what people are willing to watch." And I only want to write a show that exists in the overlap. Like I don't care about being like smart and edgy and in your face if I'm not creating a show people really want to watch. But I also don't want to show people or really want to watch if it's also not smart. And and it was like a really fascinating way to be like, yeah, like I always want to be both these things, not just, I don't want to pander. I also don't want to be pretentious. I want to be right in the middle. And I think that's like a cool way to like do things. Before I, I ask you the last question, um, in terms of the future and I mean, it's scary uh, observing America from afar and I can't even imagine what it's like being in it what's the general feeling about yeah I guess the future I hope we get one like I know it's dark but that's what it is I I think it'll be I think right now everything feels very up in the air because no one knows how this midterm election is going to go I think that for the last couple of years, there has been this sense of like, oh, well, we'll vote them out in 2018 and then we'll take back our country. But now I think people are like are legit concerned that's not going to happen. And so I think like, I think that that's going to be, I mean, like, let's be fair, like looking at the UK from afar is not super comforting right now either. Like we don't know what's happening with y'all on a daily basis. Like it feels like, I keep hearing like one version of like Brexit's not happening anymore. It's like now we're moving forward on Brexit. And, like now we're having this thing. Out. And like, oh, it's so freaking scary. Mm. And I just like, I really, really, really hope that someday I'm looking back on this era with like either like my grandkids, if I have any, or like people's, like my nieces, kids, or whatever, and being like, this was the moment where we almost lost it all to fascism again, but we fought it back and we got past it as opposed to not being there at all. Cause I'll probably be dead by then if it doesn't go the way that I want it to go. So um, I, I will feel a lot more like I have a sense of the future after November, November 8th, no, November 6th. I've already voted. So I, I'm not as, I don't have the date memorized anymore. It's the first, it's the Tuesday after the first Monday. So it's the sixth, but um yeah. Oh, fingers crossed. Oh, right, I'll ask you the last question that I always ask on the podcast. Okay. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> so, uh, you're in the delivery room mm-hmm. and you have just been born and you're holding yourself as a teeny tiny baby. And Tiny Riley is crying and crying and crying because there's lights and sounds and there weren't lights and sounds in the womb. And she's terrified. She's like, is this life? Is this what life's going to be like? And you're 36. So you know that the next 36 years of her life are going to be filled with lights and sounds. But it won't be lights and sounds. It'll be other things. It'll be other things that feel just as frightening as lights and sounds. And you can say something to Tiny, Tiny, Tiny baby Riley, you can't change the future. So it doesn't work giving advice because that's not going to okay. do anything. But for this very moment, you can say something about the next 36 years uh-huh. to tiny Riley. What would you say to tiny, tiny baby you? It's a girl. No, um, <laughs> you'll get there. I think I'll say you'll get there. Do you still need to be told that? Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, I definitely think I do. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. This is great. What, where can people find your stuff? 
Oh boy, um, I am on the internet. Uh, I am on Twitter. I am on. I'm at, I'm at Riley J Silverman on Twitter. I'm on Instagram at Riley Silverman. Um, if you are a Doctor Who fan, I am writing reviews uh, for Nerdist.com. If you if you want to know what an American thinks about Doctor Who, uh, I am writing reviews for Series Eleven on Nerdist, and I have um, I have been playing in a live stream role playing game on the Dungeons and Dragons Twitch channel, which airs at 1 p.m. in the, uh, on the Twitch channel, it's twitch.com slash dnd. Uh, it's 1 p.m. Pacific in America, but once it's aired, it, it gets posted on their thing later as a video on demand. So if you can't watch it as it's live, I understand timing and the world's different, uh, but there's the thing here. So we're doing at least 10 episodes for season one, and we might come back for second season if it's popular enough. So definitely watch it. Thank you. Do you have an album as well? I do have an album. Um, it's called Intimate Apparel. It's a digital album. But actually, newer than the album, I was actually part of a comedy special called uh, It Gets it, it, Everything Is Fine. And it was on uh, Seed and Spark, which is like a crowdsourcing website that has like uh, their own little uh, hosting deal. And for like $2 a month, you can watch a bunch of independent films that are made with the funding that they got from the website. And I, the show that I, the special I was on was their first independent production they did so you can go watch that and that's actually a good way to put money in my pocket so do that amazing there's a, yeah there's an hour-long special with me and five other comedians and then there's also these little half hour specials that are interviews with us and people who know us and then our set as well so you can watch one or the other or both and i encourage both <laughs> <laughs> thank you so so much Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I hope you enjoyed Riley. Uh, I'm going to just quickly say thank you for all the work you're doing for the podcast, for the sharing, for the tweeting, for the, especially when you tweet the guest who's been on the podcast to let them know that you're very grateful for, for them sharing their stories. That's one of the loveliest things. Thank you for supporting me financially and emotionally and for coming to my shows, for coming to my tour. Uh, this is my favorite place uh, to to work, like within the area of this podcast and with you people. I'm uh, so, so proud of the collective spirit. No, the collective... Um, like when I, when I talk to guests and I have to convince them to do the podcast, I love talking about the listeners and explaining how you're this group of just, I mean, I know it doesn't go for all of you, but I see you as like a group of kind people, really kind people who are introverted, I guess, like in general, perhaps, and who, um, who just want to do the right thing, I think, who wants, who wants to learn. I think, I mean, I, now I feel very self-conscious about saying what you're all like, because there's quite a, quite a lot of you, but um, yeah, you never fail to disappoint, so thank you so much for that, and uh, now I'm going to thank the people who are patrons, people who go to patreon.com forward slash mopod, M-O-H-P-O-D, and that is where you can donate on a episodial, that's not a word, is it, on an uh, on an episode-to-episode basis, if you donate more than $5 per episode, you become a friend of the podcast. It's super easy to sign up, type in your information and all of that, and then everything happens automatically. And then I get to be able to afford to keep doing the podcast. So uh, everyone wins. And if you give more than $5, $5 or more per episode, you become a friend of the podcast, which means that I will give you this heartfelt thank you at the end of the episode which is now so i want to say thank you to these absolute legends people whose names i will never forget people who uh <laughs> you'll be able to say one of these names to me in 20 years and i'll be like oh, yes fiona richardson i remember fiona richardson she's a friend of the podcast so I want to say thank you to all of these people. I want to thank Andrea Papillon, Andy Walker, Kat Posse, Claire McCowlin, Claire, Danny Beckett, Daniel Reifersheed, Eleanor, Emma Chan, Fiona Richardson, Hannah Keel, Harold Van Dyke, Harry Minnett, Helena Thomas, Ida Sergo Larsen, Inga Ellingsen, James Brand, Janie Mahoney, Joe C., 
Josefine Larsen, Kathy Draxelbauer, Katie Hatfield, Katrine Engelsen, KT, Kirsten Davison, Queen T, Lil- Lillian Harry French, Murray Fraser, Mansur Mir, Marbles Loss, Mia Rainey, Maroc. Morak Fraser, Olivia Robson, Paul Swaddle, Perpetual Motion, Phil Babalas, uh, Pierre Feneuf, Rachel Hemsley, Rachel Furley, Rachel Phillips, Ragdoll, Robert Knowles, uh, Robin Kappa, Ronya Ronya, Russell Hughes, Sarah Fierro, Eikersid, Sarah Alette, Sheena Machette Cole, Cecil Fjeldsun, and Susie Tyler. Thank you so much for being patrons. It means the absolute world to me. You are so lovely. So people who give me one-off donations as well, Thank you, thank you. You are not forgotten. Right. That was that episode. Uh, thank you so much for listening, especially all the way through. Do go, uh, if you want more podcast stuff, go and find Secret Dinosaur Cult where you get your podcasts. And uh, come to one of our live cult meetings. Uh, everything through secretdinosaurcult.com. I will speak to you next Wednesday. But first, thank you to our brand new producer as you might be aware we lost our um we lost sarah she's uh too busy now with being successful so um (laughs) now it sounds like uh dave isn't successful dave's very successful and i am so lucky that the first person i begged to produce this podcast said yes dave pickering who is uh a good friend of mine and who has run a lot of gigs in London and who has podcasts of his own, um, getting a, getting better, getting better, get better, get better acquainted, getting better acquainted. Dave, I'm going to learn the name of your podcast and I'm going to plug them on the next episode. And, um, <laughs> I promise I'll, I'll do better. Um, as for now, I just want to say a huge thank you to our new producer, Dave Pickering for producing this episode to Harriet Brain for writing and recording the jingle and to Linda Brinkhouse for the loco. I will speak to you next Wednesday. Bye. Low power.